You're listening to episode 188 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. It's always great whenever I get the chance to have friends on the podcast, and today it's certainly that. I got to know Daniel through a doctoral program that we're both doing together, and I had a chance over the last couple of months to read his book, The Power of Place. I found it to be incredibly well-written, but also a really important topic. Uh, I've written myself in the five masculine instincts about restlessness, this need for adventure, or the grass always being greener on the other side of the fence. And Daniel understands that well. He understands this ancient practice of a vow of stability and how important place can be to cultivating depth in our faith, in our walk, in our relationship with God, and also just serving well the place around us. A really helpful conversation. I think you'll enjoy this one. As always, thanks for listening. Well, I'm joined on the podcast today by Daniel Grothy. He's the associate senior pastor at New Life Church in Colorado Springs. He's a pastor, a speaker, a drummer, interesting fact as well, and author of Chasing Wisdom and the book we're talking about today, The Power of Place. Daniel and his wife live on a, a hobby farm in co- outside of Colorado Springs with their three children, and I hear a whole lot of animals. Maybe we'll get to hear some about that. And uh, man, it's a privilege to have Daniel on as a, as a friend as well, too. He and I are both in the same doctoral program right now, and I got a chance to read his book a few weeks ago, and I have to say, uh, it's always a compliment when a book is not only good content, but it's well-written as well, and The Power of Place was certainly that. I found it impactful, but also just really a pleasure to read. So Daniel, a privilege, honor to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Chase. Glad to be here. Well, maybe we could hear a little bit. You do write a little bit about the farm in the book, but I'd like maybe for some context just to start off, tell us a little bit about uh, where you're pastoring today. And uh, if you want to sneak a little uh, farm update in there as well, too, I'm sure nobody would mind. Sure. Yeah. I'm in Colorado Springs, been out here 17 years and about Five years ago, we bought uh, an old ranch that's been in a family, one family since the Great Depression. And so we bought it with my sister and brother-in-law and another family. So three families out on the land. And there's a creek running through it year round. We, uh, I was out walking earlier and there's a, there's a great horned owl out in the tree staring at me. We, we hunt out here, got a resident elk herd on the land. And so my brother-in-law got the big bull elk, uh, the last two years. And we have done, we've raised and sold 30 cattle in the last three years. Uh, we've got chickens, we've got goats, we've got horses, we've got pigs. We are breeding dogs. My little girl, Lily, and I say little, she's now 14. She's, uh, she's sold 16 mini golden doodles in the last year. And so we said, if we were going to leave the neighborhood, we were going to let our kids take risks and chances, opportunities that we wouldn't have been able to do in the neighborhood. So there's not one fun story. My my girl, Lillian, uh, she was 12. So this was two years ago. And I told our three kids, we have Lillian and two boys, Wilson and Wakely, and their cousins live right next door on this property. And so they love to go play. And if you don't tell them when to be home, they'll they'll come home late. So I said, hey, dinner will be hot and ready on the table at six. I want you with your hands washed in your seats at six. Yes, sir. So they run on out. And uh, at six o'clock, my phone rings and it's my brother-in-law from across the way. 
And I say, hey, David. And I pick up the phone and it's my daughter, Lillian. And she said, Dad, I know you said be home at six. I'm going to be probably 20 minutes late to dinner. And I'm so sorry. I know you gave us instructions. And I said, okay, what's the deal? What? Why are you going to be late? She said, well, Dad, I'm not done castrating the piglets yet. And <laughs> I've got to finish up castrating and su- suturing up the piglets and then I'll be there. So I thought, when did I ever think my 12-year-old girl was going to be late to dinner because she was, wasn't done castrating the piglets yet? So those are some of the fun conversations we're having with our kids. Man, I love it. I've got a daughter who's five. We have a much scaled down version of what you do, but we do have horses and chickens and dogs. And uh, my five-year-old is all into the, the farm work. So I, have a, I, I could see this play out 10 years from now in my life as well. Get ready, bro. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Sounds like it. Well, I like starting there because um, in the book, you specifically talk, you tell a little bit of your story, why that lands significant to you. But you also said it in this cultural context, the moment we're in, you use the word wanderlust. And I want you to maybe unpack that word and how you think it represents the time we find ourselves in. Yeah, we are living a human experiment right now. We are the first society in human history that has the options that we have. Uh, for all of history, families have had to stay together and live multi-generationally. So it wouldn't have been uncommon to have three and sometimes four, if they could live long enough, four generations in the same house or at least on the same land taking care of each other. Uh, so it wasn't unusual to grow up in, in the community that your grandparents grew up in and to stay there your whole life and to work at the same job for 30 or 40 years and retire and just kind of live this story in in one locale. Uh, we now in the first world West are, are living an experiment where we can, we think as long as we can pay our bills, we have what we need to live. And so we'll hop down to Austin for four years, three or four years, because there's a good vibe coming out of Austin and they've got food trucks and they've got paddle boarding at the lake and Austin's a vibe. Okay, four years in Austin, it's not really working for me. I'm going to run out to L.A. and see what's happening out there in that scene. It's quite a compelling place to be. Uh, there's too much traffic. It's too expensive. The politics are crazy during COVID. Let's go out to Nashville. Okay, let's go to NYC. And and we hop from place to place, three and four year increments. And we think as long as we're paying our bills, we have what we need. Uh, with that, you've got with this age of wanderlust, you've got celebrities posting their highlight reels on social media. And we're aware of them jet setting around the globe and multiple homes and beach vacations and beautiful sleek bodies. It's just like, wow, we look at those highlight reels and we think how boring and ordinary and normal our lives are. And if we're not careful, it will make us restless to go find meaning somewhere else. So I think we're living in a moment that is sort of built to destabilize us. It's built to keep us moving. It's built, if we're not careful, in a way that will keep us rootless. But sociologists and psychologists and philosophers through the ages have talked not just about financial capital, but about social capital. So social capital is having aunties and uncles that know you and people, multi-generational relationships in the same place, uh, grandparents that can help you raise your kids, and a sense of rootedness in a place that has given you an identity. So my, my point in this book is to say, 
that the age we're living in is pressing against all of those opportunities and it's driving us away if we're not careful. So it's just a, an opportunity to interrogate the moment we're living in. So we are the richest society in human history, but I wonder if we're the most relationally bankrupt society in human history. We can pay our bills, but we're lonely and we're medicating it in many ways. So this book is just a call to reclaim that ancient vow of stability. Well, I noticed Ozark, Missouri was not in your list of cool places people are moving. That's uh, that's that's where I'm I live. So uh, yeah, so already I'm, I'm a jump start here. But I, one of the things that stood out to me in the book was you you spent some time unpacking the biblical theme of people being scattered. Which obviously I was familiar with God scattering people at Babel or scattering that you know the into the uh, exile as punishment. But I'd never I'd never recognized it as a biblical theme that this is actually something that stretches through Scripture in an intentional way. Maybe you could talk about why the Bible speaks about scattering and why that theme is important. Yeah, well, uh, it's you look at the first curse in the garden, Adam and Eve take the story into their own hands. We will be like God, uh, snatch the fruit. And they're, what happens? The first curse is they're driven from the garden. They're, they're placeless. The first curse is placelessness. We obviously understand the deep heartache and the, 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 the cry from the wilderness in Egypt, God save us, of 400 years plus of slavery in Egypt, uh, more bricks, less straw. We have no home. God promised Abraham, our father, a promised land, and uh, we lost it. We're we're here stuck in Egypt. And then obviously, like you said, Assyria and Babylon and Persia, the exiles in various places. And But then you see, so that those are the negative dimensions of placelessness or being scattered. But then you also see in Acts chapter 1 and 2, when the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, uh, all the nations come together and they're heard in one, you know, they're hearing the gospel in their own language. And then they start obeying what Jesus said. He says, Go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost bounds of the earth. Go. And so they do start going. They, they go all over Asia Minor and into the uh, Greco-Roman world, and Thomas goes down to India and founds the church down there, and the gospel advances to the you know four corners. Still, what what I want to say as I'm as I'm calling people to reclaim the vow of stability in this book, what I want to say about even that missionary thrust outward is that once they got there, they planted churches, they settled, they they established communities of faith. They rooted their lives. And even in Jeremiah 29, that famous passage that we know, most people know, for I know the plans I have for you. Uh, we, we sort of lift that out. We t proof text that and we put that on our refrigerators. But the first 10 verses of Jeremiah 29 are God saying to the people, you're going to be 70 years in exile. You're, you're going to leave the promised land. You're losing home. And... I want you to plant crops and to start businesses and to marry your children off and to seek the peace and the prosperity of the place to which I have sent you. For if it prospers, you too will prosper. So there is this great sort of Genesis 12 reality to all of our lives of faith. There, there, is, there are moments when the Lord will say, go to a land that I will show you. I left Tulsa, Oklahoma 17 years ago to come to Colorado Springs. I'd lived my whole life in Tulsa. And I've been here the last 17 years. 
we did have a go to a land that I will show you kind of moment. But then when that happens, Abraham ends up settling in the promised land. And so there is there are times where we're scattered, but then even in those moments, God calls us to, to be planted and to to build lives uh, of the kingdom in, in certain places. So it's, it's, it's a tension for sure. Um, but I, I'm saying that the moment we're living in drives us toward instability and wanderlust. So we've just got to know the moment that we're in and then respond accordingly. Well, you uh, have used the phrase a couple times already, a vow of stability. You write in the book, uh, getting that from St. Benedict. When, when did you come across that, that vow, that commitment? And uh, how did it start to work itself into your life as well? Yeah, it hit me early on in my master's program. I was reading lots of church history and stumbled across, you know, the vow of St. Benedict. And uh, I've really appreciated Benedictine communities uh, around the globe. And I've been to many monasteries and stayed for retreats and all that and and have a sense of their pace of life and the beauty of the, the call that they've said yes to. But I hadn't realized that, you know, I always knew saints of old took vows of, of chastity with their sexuality. I knew that they took vows of charity with their money. I knew that they took vows of obedience to scripture, that the Bible's our book. But what shocked me in grad school as I was studying the life of St. Benedict and his, his call, his vow, is that the very first vow he called the saints of old to take was the vow of stabilitas, stability in place. Like before you do anything else, root your life down here, find your place, find your people and try to die there. And that shocked me. And then you start reading uh, the church history and even the scriptures and you realize the saints are always from somewhere. You, St. Saint, Saint Benedict of Nursia, you've got uh, St. Francis of Assisi, you've got St. Hildegard of Bingen, you've got St. Teresa of Calcutta. And then you go, wait. It makes sense that we're following St. Jesus of Nazareth, who, when God wants to show salvation coming into the earth, he doesn't sprinkle salvation from the balconies of heaven like fairy dust. He, he is in wound in the Virgin Mary, who was located in a specific place in a sp- specific time. And Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth, who then ends up, when his ministry launches, moving into Jerusalem. Like salvation is always located in the particulars of our life. So this is not the God of abstraction. We say the word was made flesh and he dwelt among us in a particular place. So if the saints are always from somewhere, then I think for us to live convincing lives of faithfulness, we have to be rooted somewhere. A couple times you refer to uh, a piece of writing by Chesterton where he specifically calls for the value of walls and the benefit of walls. I really found that helpful. And then you later on apply it. I think it's uh, specifically to marriage as well, too. Mm -hmm. But that idea of uh, which I'll let you kind of unpack the idea of walls. But culturally, it feels sort of taboo, right? Like, don't fence me in. Don't wall me in. Like, I should be free. Uh, But you actually see there's, there's some real benefits to constructing walls around our lives. Absolutely. Uh, Chesterton's got this unbelievable uh, section. Gosh, I wish I had what page. Yeah, nobody, gives you, nobody gives you quotes like Chesterton. There's a few of those <laughs> in my book, too. He's powerful. So, <clears throat> here, here it is. I found it on page 38. He says, those countries in Europe which are still influenced by priests, 
are exactly the countries where there is still singing and dancing and colored dresses and art in the open air. Catholic doctrine and discipline may be walls, but they are the walls of a playground. We might fancy some children playing on the flat grassy top of some tall island in the middle of the sea. So long as there was a wall around the cliff's edge, they could fling themselves into every frantic game and make the place the noisiest of nurseries. But the walls were knocked down, leaving the naked peril of the precipice. They did not fall over, the kids, but when their friends returned to them, they were all huddled in terror in the center of the island, and their song had ceased. So he gives us this image of this island out in the, the, the middle of the sea, and it's got walls. And as long as there's walls, they, they make it the noisiest of nurseries. It's a playground. It's, it's, there's safety and stability. You remove the walls, and now they're scared, and they're huddled in the middle, and their song has ceased. And, and I use this as a way of saying, you know, like the first lie, I think, in the garden is that God is holding out on you. Like you're missing out on something. And Adam and Eve, like they're given the, the, the lush, fruitful, spacious place in which to live their image of God. I mean, they, like everything you have is right here. But there's one thing that's off, guard, off, uh, off limits. We can't go to the center. It's the, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and the enemy slithers up and says, you're missing out on something. God is withholding. God is keeping you from joy. God wants to restrict your life. And so they take the story into their own hands, and then they're like the children on the flat, grassy top. They're huddled in the middle, and their song had ceased. And so what I want to say is that we think of place, being rooted in a place. We think of the life of stability as like some sort of walls of withholding that God is holding out on us. He's keeping us from joy. Man, why would you ask me to do that, God? I, I, that's not fun. But actually, I, I say, you know, it's not the walls of withholding. It's the walls of wonder that God protects us within a place. He, he keeps us. Uh, every, every ancient Near Eastern society, when a city was flourishing, it had really solid walls that they could close themselves in. They were protected from the enemy on the outside. And God wants to give us a place, not as a way of making us miserable, but as a way of preserving us, of protecting us. So it's not the walls of withholding. It's the walls of wonder. And uh, if we could just learn to discover the beauty of the gift right in front of us, instead of longing for the life that we think we're missing out on. Like we want to, we want to live as if, gosh, I wonder what's out there instead of just receiving the gift that's right here. And if we could flip that on its head and start to notice the gift that God has given us right in front of us, I think we'd be a lot happier. Whenever we talk about this challenge that we're facing culturally and the need for stability for place, um, it's easy to, to, to see that broadly, generically. But do you think there's something particularly Christian about stability, something within the Christian faith that that helps us embrace this kind of stability, maybe in the way that the world outside of faith really can't? Well, yes, but maybe, maybe like, maybe we should just drill down and say, maybe it's something human. Maybe it's not particularly, it's Christian in the sense that Christians are trying to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who made himself known in Jesus. But I think it's just, it's a creational design. I think it's a, it's written and wired into the fabric of 
the cosmos. So yes, it's Christian in the sense that Christians ought to practice it and strive for that. But I think my hesitancy in saying it's Christian is people who aren't Christians feeling like it's they're excluded from it or that it's not their inheritance too. So I think it's just a creational gift and Christians give witness to the life of faith by practicing it, by, by living the life of stability. Uh, so yes, I'm, I'm, I'm parsing things here. Yes. I think Christians get to live the vow of stability and show what it looks like to be God's people in the world. But this is a human thing. I think it's been wired into us from the beginning. And I think it's the way we practice our faithfulness. So like people want to change the world, right? We, I think everyone gets out of bed in the morning. It, it's written into our code to want to make a difference. But the question is, how do we make a difference? And very often we, we have this uh, so romanticized, glamorized view of how we change the world. I want to I want to go out there. I want to make my mark. I've got to leave the small, simple place that I am to go out into the great unknown to change the world. When I think Christians have done exactly the opposite thing. Uh, Christians have paid attention to their streets and their alleys and Uh, Christians won over the Roman Empire. When the gospel exploded in the first 300 years uh, after Christ was risen, it was in pandemics. It was in wars. It was when uh, great plagues swept across Europe and Africa and people threw their sick children out in the streets. And what did the Christians do? The Christians went out and collected the children and they started orphanages and they started hospitals and they started schools Christians have given witness to the kingdom of God by making their places better and by taking care of the people in their neighborhoods. So I think this is the unique way that we get to practice that human desire to change the world. We don't change the world by leaving the small lives that we've been given. We change the world by entering into the small lives and noticing the small people and the small details And you look up after 50 years of doing that simple, faithful work, and you see the kingdom has come on the earth as it is in heaven. One of the things that I appreciated so much about the book is when you talk about place, you're not just talking about land. Um, I could imagine a listener thinking, well, great, if we could all have 40 acres and be self-sustaining and sort of hole up in our place, like, sure, maybe that would be uh, idyllic. But you you see place as bigger than just a physical location. Really, so much of the book is around recognizing that place is more than just land. But I want to give you an opportunity. How do you go about discerning place yeah. and all that funnels into place? Yeah, I I think we've all been planted in particular soil. There is no generic, you know, one size fits all. And yes, I'm not saying everyone needs a 40 acre track. To, to live this. Not at all. Jesus teaches us to pray. And when he teaches us to pray, he says, here's how you pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Christians from that prayer have learned to hallow the name of God on whatever little patch of ground they've been given, wherever their lives are playing out. Say, hallowed be thy name. And Lord, let your kingdom come right here on the earth as it is in heaven. And so you may live in an apartment complex. 
and housing prices, I mean, your area is gentrifying and you would love to have that beautiful house, but you just don't. And you've been in the apartment for three years and you see another three years in front of you. What if you just said, you know what, this is where I happen to be at this moment. And Jesus taught me to pray, hallowed be thy name on the earth as it is in heaven. And so I'm going to make my apartment complex the most wonderful place to live for the people around me. Yeah, and I'm maybe, gonna, maybe we could even say, add the word to it, uh, maybe look down and say, you know, uh, on this earth <laughs> as it is yes. in heaven, right? Like this yes. particular place I'm standing. Exactly. Yeah. Right here. This is where I can find a job right now. This is where I can afford to pay a rent. And these are the kids that God has put around me. And my apartment complex, I'm going to take care of these kids and they're going to know they're loved. And I'm going to be kind of the cool older auntie or uncle in the faith and just be the safe place for everyone. And I'm going to give popsicles when it's 100 degrees in the summer. And I'm going to just I'm going to be everyone's biggest cheerleader. And you look up five years later and you've seen the kingdom come on the earth as it is in heaven. And you start tutoring the kids in your apartment complex that that don't they're in a single parent family and, and mom's grinding and doesn't have the resources. And you say, it's fine. I'm just going to I know how to do math. I'm going to teach your kid math. Like that, it, it, that's as simple as I can make it. And, and we think that the way the world gets changed is by some monster sweeping initiatives. No, it's these little micro miracles breaking out with uh, little pockets of people who have signed up to hallow the name of God in their own little particular stories in their own particular places. So it can really be as simple as how in the next six months do I make my apartment complex the best place for these kids to live? You're getting at the value of relationships as it plays into place. And that's a big part of the book, too. It is also the value of these relationships in this place. And maybe also specifically marriage. How is it that marriage teaches us the value, the power of place and the relationships around us as well? Well, when marriage is working rightly, it is an icon of stability. It doesn't mean marriage is always easy. It doesn't mean it's always uh, this big honeymoon. It, it, it's not. It, like most of life is, um, is just the daily routines of paying the bills and doing the dishes and folding the laundry and living faithfully uh, in the name of Jesus. So yeah, marriage, when it's working rightly, becomes this, as N.T. Wright would say, like a signpost of the kingdom. Like God is the God who says, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. And when a husband and a wife come together and try to live that out, it's beautiful. The kingdom comes on the earth as it is in heaven. And when it gets difficult or when it gets boring or you hit that kind of seven year slump or whatever you want to insert there, people go, you know what? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I've loved you with an everlasting love. You learn how to practice repentance and forgiveness. You learn how to just stay over the long decades and you practice your vow of stability with one person and the people around you draw strength from the strength of your marriage. And so, yes, marriage is a great way of demonstrating this life of stability. So is friendship. Uh, we, we, why, one of the reasons I think we live in this age of wanderlust and instability is 
we have become wildly tribal and we're fighters. The political climate that we live in, we want to win. We want the other person to lose. Uh, we're Democrats against Republicans, whites against blacks, rich against poor, Russians against Ukrainians. It, it's just, I want to dominate you. And for me to get ahead, you have to be behind. For me to win, you have to lose. That's the moment we're living in. And so it's really easy to lose friendship with people in this tribalistic, politicized moment. But when people can go, you know what, we have different convictions about how we vote. We come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, but we're in the same place and you're my friend and I'm going to die being your friend. I'm not going anywhere. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. When people can take that into their being and practice that, the world becomes more stable for the people around us. So yeah, friendship and marriage are great ways to practice the vow of stability. I do want to ask you, and I don't think it's something you cover explicitly in the book, but you and I are both pastors, and you do write a little bit about how this has factored into to your role as a pastor. Um, it's not uncommon for pastors to to move a lot. It's not uncommon to move cross-country to pastor many congregations in your life. Uh, how should pastors, in your opinion, think about longevity, a vow of stability? Um, sure. Certainly, this is something we're not just going to preach to the people out of place as we hop around place after place. How is it a pastor could really embrace this, even in uh, even in a life of ministry? Sure. Well, let me just again clarify. There will be moments where the Spirit of the Lord moves and you feel the call to go to a land that I will show you. So again, I am not romanticizing place, and I'm not saying that if you're living faithfully, you'll never move. I'm not saying that. Yeah, certainly there has to be some distinction, I think a pretty clear one, between God has called me and this image of wanderlust you're painting of just constant yes. restlessness. Those really are two very different things. Two very different things, and if God calls you the best thing you could do is obey and you'll be miserable if you don't. So if the Spirit speaks, have a community of discernment around you. Don't do this alone. Get a bunch of people's eyes on it. And, and Acts 13, 2, you know, they had gathered together to fast and to pray. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work. Sure. So if you're going to move, move in the context of communal discernment. And if God says go, go, period. I think, though, the American dream, American business model, uh, age of instability that we're living in, uh, we're choosing to uproot very often. We're choosing to look for a better parish. Eugene Peterson, who was my mentor for the last 10 years of his life and a dear friend, he writes about this and, and spent so much of his life calling for people to take the vow of stability and he would say, you know, there was this like religious careerism that had infected his moment in time. And I think it's still very much alive where we look for a larger platform with a larger salary and more influence and more views. And so we we are trained almost accidentally. We're trained to seek out what we would quote unquote call more influence. And I just think it's 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 destructive. I think it's maybe I could say demonic <laughs> when we're, when we're being driven by the metrics of the market economy to find our new places. Uh, so uh, let, let me say like, how do pastors think about place? Well, the, the predominant metaphor scripturally that we've been given for the work that we're called to do is the metaphor, the image of the shepherd. 
and shepherds don't bounce around. They they bounce around with their flock. I mean, look, we got a green pasture over here. We've got quiet waters over here. There's a mountain lion on the prowl. I got to protect you. So, But they move with their people. They, they've got their pastures that they know. And the shepherd stays with his flock, her flock. And I'll just say that I... I, I'm troubled by the pastors that bounce around every three, four, five years because I know, and you know, Chase, as pastors, at that point, you're just getting to know the people. At that point, you're just starting to gain credibility. You're starting to earn trust. At that point, you're just getting ready to be able to do the multi-generational kingdom work. And if you uproot at that moment, to go to a place where you have to start all over. Like think about a pastor who moves every four years in a 28 year career. You've got seven parishes or seven congregations. And just when you're getting the, the spiritual authority and the relational equity to do your work, you move and you do that seven times and then you retire. I don't know that that's God's demand on our lives. I think that might be an American business model. I think that might be a self-inflicted wound. So if God says go, then you go. But you have to interrogate the moment you're in and say, hey, why would I be moving? Am I moving because I'm restless? Am I moving because I want more influence? Or am I being called, could I settle down and spend all of my career here? And Eugene did that for 29 years at Christ Our King in Bel Air, Maryland, and nobody wanted to be in Bel Air, Maryland. And I'll say that I think Eugene Peterson, you know, I say he translated the Message Bible at 65 years old, and I say it only took him 65 years to become an overnight success. (laughs) And I think maybe the the grace on his life and the the spiritual authority and the blessing of God on his life that really erupted at 65 was because of 30 plus years of his inglorious work in a backwoods place that nobody wanted to be in and I think the Lord looks at that over the decades and goes you know what I can trust this guy with more because he's been faithful with a little so I don't know I'm riffing what are you hearing there Chase you're a pastor what stands out to you yeah, well, I loved the phrase you used, interrogating, interrogating your desires. Um, it is so easy just to get caught up in the moment and just assume that it's a good thing. It looks good. It's good on paper. It makes sense. You can justify it in so many different ways as better ministry, bigger ministry. But that ability to really interrogate, uh, and I think that's what your book does well. It's not just saying, as you've, I think, really clearly articulated multiple times, just accept the place and be done with it. It's really trying to teach people, how do you discern place? How do you discern the value of a place? And you write um, one of my favorite phrases, although it's very simple, is at the beginning of the book. You say the purpose, the purpose of this book is to help you be where you are, yes. which sounds like such a simple <laughs> idea, but also sounds so profoundly countercultural. And at the same time, in so many ways, what everyone is looking for, how, how could I be where I am? Uh, mm. That is a remarkably hard thing. And I know there are probably listeners, whether they're pastors or, uh, or you know, people of all sorts of vocations who are saying, look, the truth is I'm caught up in it right now. I'm feeling the restlessness. I'm feeling bored with this place. Yeah. What would you just say if somebody really wanted to begin this journey through discernment of being where they are? Well, there's that, there's that real iconic Bonhoeffer 
quote, and I'll just give it to you as the, sort of the principle because I don't have the quote memorized. You, you've probably preached it before, but destructive of the Christian community is the person who loves the idea of the community rather than the actual community itself. Like we, we have these pictures of what we think it's going to be like. And then we have the actual experience of these saints and sinners in this very average place. And so we, we've got this glamorized, romanticized view of the life of ministry that we hope for. And then we've got the actual community and the life of ministry right in front of us. And, and, and Bonhoeffer says, the one who destroys the Christian community is the one who uh, aches for the community and their imagination rather than the community right in front of them. So the book is written to help you be where you are. I'd forgotten I'd written that phrase, Chase. Thank it's you. It's a great for, phrase. I love that. It makes me smile. I go, I got to write that? Cool. <laughs> um, but help you be where you are. Uh, marriage. I, I just am where I am. I, I'm with Lisa, and I shouldn't desire to be anywhere else. I've got Lillian Wilson and Wakely as my children. Those are the ones God has given me. God, help me be where I am. I, I, I make the money that I make. Lord, help me to be thankful for what I have. I live in the house that I live in. Lord, thank you for the. We drive the cars that we... Thank God we have cars. Our kids have schools. Like all of life is learning to fall in love with the gift that God has given us right in front of us. Rather help people love where they are, learn to be where they are, and, and sign up for the church that God has put right in front of them and the friendships that God has put right in front of them, and the moment in time, like, I think the world would be better if we all simply learned uh, to, to love where we are. And that's really the only impact I can make on the world is by being where I am in the name of Jesus. Yeah, well, it's such a great book. I just want to recommend it again. The book is The Power of Place, Daniel Grothy. Uh, as I said at the beginning, the book, I think as we've been talking about it, you're going to find it, it powerful, moving, helpful, practical, but it's also just really well written. Uh, it's a joy to read, and I think it the experience of reading it uh, feels like the content of it as well, too. It will help you figure out how to be. It will help you cultivate better discernment and contentment. Uh, Daniel, curious if you're working on anything else, uh, but also more importantly, if people want to follow you, if they want to, uh, um, I don't know, if you share farm photos somewhere or if they just want to be able to pick up a copy yeah. of the book, what's the best way for them to keep up with you? Well, you can find the book anywhere books are sold. Um, uh, maybe Hearts and Minds Bookstore. Uh, you could you could buy it there if you wanted to buy a small business owner. And obviously Jeff Bezos knows what he's doing. So if you, if you're an Amazon person, you can get it there. Uh, Insta Instagram, Mr. Daniel Grothy, M R Daniel G R O T H E, uh, Twitter, the same handle, Mr. Daniel Grothy. And then Facebook. Yeah, I, I've got pictures of the farm up there. Um, 
But yeah, I, to your question, I'm working on what you're working on, which is our doctoral projects. <laughs> so I've written two books in two years and, and I, I'm taking a breather there and really just focusing on this three-year doctoral program, which will really deliver a project at the end of it. But I, I, with preaching every week and editing for this Bible app out there, my plate is full besides my doctoral work. So I'm really just working on this uh, D-Men program and we'll see what we show up with in three years. I can't wait to read your project, dude. Well, something will come out of it for both of us. So who knows how far it'll go. But uh, but yeah, we both are staying busy with plenty of writing ahead. So Daniel, man, uh, just so grateful. Grateful for your friendship, but also an opportunity to talk about the book, The Power of Place. If you haven't picked it up, do it. And uh, we'll get you back on here uh, maybe three years from now. We'll reflect on whatever yeah, whatever we accomplish over the next three years. So Let's talk shop. Thanks for having me on, Chase. You're a great interviewer and a great man. And I'll see you soon for our doctoral work. As always, you can find show notes for today's episode by going to pastorwriter.com. There you'll find information on Daniel's book, uh, as well as past episodes. If you haven't already subscribed, that's a great way to keep up with episodes. I've got some great interviews coming up in the weeks ahead. And also, while you're there, maybe you'd consider leaving a review. You could just click one of the stars, let me know what you think of the show, or type out a brief message. It's a great way for me to get feedback and keep making improvements. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.